A little hopped up, a little gabba gabba hay here. Big Wally gets his chance here sooner rather than later. Which of these young players potentially become trade chips? Newsday presents the Island Ice Podcast with Andrew Gross. And welcome to Island Ice, Newsday's New York Islanders podcast, episode 66. That used to be Josh Hosang's number, and we'll have a little snippet of Josh Hosang-related news in just a few minutes. Hi, I'm Andrew Gross of Newsday. Please find me on Twitter at agrossnewsday, and also via Newsday Islanders text, your direct connection to one-on-one communication with me and other Newsday staffers covering the team. Text 631-303-3766 or go to newsday.com backslash Isles text to start your 14-day trial subscription. On this episode, I'll chat with Islanders radio analyst Greg Picker and also field your questions with some Andrew's answers. And if I'm Talking a little bit fast right now, I just, uh, as I was doing my show prep and getting things together, was listening to a couple of Ramones concerts, so uh, circa 1977, 1978, so uh, a little hopped up, a little gabba gabba hay here, Uh, so I will try and uh, rein it in a little bit. Well, listen, as I sit here on a late Monday night, the Islanders are five game and five games into this fifty-six game sprint of a season. Three wins with Semyon Varlamov in net, two losses, and no goals scored when Ilya Sorokin has taken the net, including a two-nothing loss to the Devils on Sunday night at Prudential Center. Busy week for the Islanders with two games at Washington on Tuesday and Thursday. And two games at Philadelphia on Saturday and Sunday. Which way this season is going to turn may actually become a little bit clearer after these four games as the Islanders try to find some offensive consistency uh, to their game. Again, no goals with Sorokin in net, but Varlamov, who will almost certainly start the first game against the Caps, and who, by the way, the Caps will not have goalie Ilya Samsonov, Alex Ovechkin, Dmitry Orlov, and Evgeny Kuznetsov because of COVID protocol. Well, Varley has gotten nine goals of support in his three starts. And, and of course, he started the season 3-0-0 with a 0.33 goals against average and a 0.988 save percentage. Uh, two shutouts in his uh, first two games, setting the Islanders' franchise record with a shutout streak of 142 minutes and 10 seconds to start his season. That was the eighth best in NHL history. So Varley has sort of carried over his postseason performance. But again, the Islanders have been inconsistent offensively, and Coach Barry Trotz acknowledged on Monday that other than his top line of Matthew Barzell, Anders Lee, and Jordan Eberle, he hasn't gotten enough from his other three lines, and they are in flux, though Trotz is not likely to tinker with the uh, invaluable fourth line of Matty Martin, Casey Sezikis, and Cal Clutterbuck. Um, Anthony Beauvillier, 
exited Sunday's game at 6.30 in the second period. Trotz listed him on Monday as day-to-day with a lower body injury. It didn't sound like he was going to play on Tuesday night, and even if he does, Trotz is considering changes among his forwards. One issue, which we'll delve into further with both Greg Picker and in the Andrews Answers segment, is that Trotz has had trouble finding wings who can complement J.G. Peugeot properly. Uh, Those are my words, not Barry Trotz's. Uh, Kiefer Bellows now on the taxi squad and Ross Johnson were on the wings on that third line for the first four games. Michael Dalcal was activated off injured reserve and replaced Bellows on Sunday. Um, But what, what we've been seeing is that Trotz sort of limits the ice time for Peugeot's wings, particularly compared to the other three lines, and starts using uh, Gigi Peugeot uh, up and down the lineup, uh, mostly, you know, slotting in uh, for a few shifts here and there in Matty Martin's spot with Casey Sezikis and Cal Clutterbuck, and, and Peugeot is taking a lot of those uh, right side faceoffs uh, as he's on his right side, uh, being a right shooter. He's sort of, uh, Trotz likes talking about Swiss Army Knives, and and that's kind of how he's using Peugeot. But meanwhile, Trotz is also known for really liking to roll those four lines. And uh, he he just has not gotten there this season uh, through five games. Uh, still early in the season, but again, 56 games, uh, it, it, it does go quickly, and, and you can't afford to get behind in the standings. Now, I'll, I'll be honest, I'm starting to wonder, wonder whether Trotz's uh, solutions to the Peugeot conundrum, uh, whether those players are on the roster right now. And, and technically, that does not include Oliver Wallstrom, who's on the taxi squad, as, as is Bellows right now. And I think Big Wally gets his chance here sooner rather than later. And I think Bellows gets back in as well probably sooner rather than later. But uh, as mentioned, this season is too much of a sprint for Trotz to spend too much time experimenting. Uh, I'm just throwing this out there, but if Lou Lamarillo looks outside the organization, which of these young players potentially become trade chips? And and speaking of outside the organization, and I, I told you there would be some Josh Hosang mention, Bridgeport GM Chris Lamarillo, son of Lou, was asked uh, by me to start on a Zoom teleconference with the media on Monday about Hosang being loaned to the Swedish Hockey League and the thinking of the Islanders organization in doing so. And look, from all of our vantage points, mine, uh, certainly yours, I'm sure, uh, those outside the organization, this latest twist in the Hosang Islander saga, uh, was was curious. He elects salary arbitration this offseason. That surprised Lou Lamarillo. But the Islanders still re-sign him to a one, one-year, two-way deal. Then Hosang is not included on the Islanders' training camp roster. Not, in, not invited to training camp. Lou Lamarillo's explanation was they, they just didn't think he was going to make the team. Um, you know, he, he, after clearing waivers, but but he's not 
reassigned to Bridgeport after clearing uh, clearing waivers, instead being loaned overseas. Look, last season, you know, we all remember he asked for a trade when he didn't make the team out of training camp, and then Lou sort of had Hosein go away. He didn't want him around Bridgeport uh, while Lou, uh, you know, supposedly tried to work out a deal. That never happened, and Hosang rejoined Bridgeport in December. But by February, uh, the Islanders had loaned him to the St. Louis Blues organization. He finished the season in San Antonio. Uh, so, so forgive me, forgive us for thinking that this this really had to be the terminus of Hosang's journey with the Islanders when he gets loaned uh, to, to Sweden, uh, not even sent to Bridgeport and, uh, you know, not even invited to training camp. Chris Lamarillo though said that not the case, potentially. Chris Lamarillo said that the communication between Hosang and the organization has been consistent and excellent and that Hosang agreed with the reasons behind being loaned to Sweden. And remember being these loans, uh, this, this tact went well in late 2020. Uh, as we waited for the NHL season, and certainly with no AHL season, that doesn't begin until February, with Wallstrom and Simon Holstrom uh, being loaned over to Sweden. So, you know, he, here was Chris Lamorello's explanation of, uh, of this loan. Bridgeport is only playing 24 games between February and May. They're only going to be against Providence, and uh, Hartford in, in their three-team division. Chris Lamarillo said it was decided that Hosang would be better served starting to play games earlier than February and playing more games than the 24 uh, max he would in the AHL, not counting potential playoff games. Uh, Chris Lamarillo called the loan open-ended, that is quote-unquote open-ended, and would not rule out Hosang returning to the organization this season. So, could Hosang be one of the potential solutions for Pajot or the Islanders' lines conundrum? I wouldn't necessarily place a lot of money on that, but for now, it, it can't necessarily be ruled out. And with that, I'd like to go to my interview with Islanders radio analyst Greg Picker, who does such a great job on air and is always incredibly well-prepared with his stats and his background. First, though... Here's a little bit more about Newsday Islanders text. Get the latest on the New York Islanders when you sign up to receive text alerts all season long. Newsday's Andrew Gross will text you real-time analysis and behind-the-scenes reporting for $4.99 a month. Go to newsday.com slash text to get started or text 631-303-3766. That's 631-303-3766 or online at newsday.com slash text. Always, always a pleasure of mine to talk to uh, my guest here, Greg Picker. You've heard him on Islanders radio broadcast with chris king how many years is it now greg this is season number nine uh um, wow. season six doing every game but season nine uh since i started doing at least some of the road games well congratulations and we'll have to have a big 10th anniversary uh episode for you next season uh one of the things i i truly miss uh, in this pandemic world is sitting down, having a really good meal with Greg and just not to use a pun, but picking apart 
hockey and uh, discussing things. But uh, we do what we can, and we have them on this episode of Island Ice. So, Greg, three wins for the Islanders, two losses, heading into a two-game series in Washington and a two-game series in Philadelphia. So because they have three wins and two losses, we'll start with the good, which would be Semyon Varlamov. What have you seen out of him and is it exactly like what you saw in the postseason bubble out of him? And, and, and how has he grown in your eyes? Well, that's where I was going to go with just uh, carrying over from how he was in, in summer in Toronto and in Edmonton a bit when the Islanders went to the Eastern Conference final. But obviously the majority of that was in Toronto. He had just over a 2.0 goals against average in those 20 games that he played a 2.14 to be exact and a 921 save percentage. And now, you know, he's almost batting a thousand. He's only allowed one goal in his three games so far. It's it's really remarkable what he's been able to put together, despite the quirkiness of the past year where you don't have your traditional training period. I know uh, before the return to play in the summer, he did go down to Texas where he has his offseason home. And I believe the rink is over an hour away from where he lives down there. So he was going every day over an hour each way to practice, stay in game shape. It worked so well for him in the return to play in, in August and September. And the off-season regimen, even though it was in the fall into winter, not the traditional schedule, has uh, kept it going. And outside of the fact that he didn't play in one game he was expecting to for interesting circumstances, but came right back two days later, he's been pretty much perfect. You know, obviously, when the Islanders sign Varlamov away from the Avalanche and they bring him in, I, I think the Lou Lamorello's idea, Barry Trotz's idea, was probably, you know, having Varlamov as part of a goalie tandem. And, you know, it would be him and either Thomas Grace or Ilya Sorokin this season and probably not have a guy that, you know, played 75% of the games. In this kind of unique 56-game season, as they're trying to bring Sorokin along, I, I think that might be a little different this season. And I, I think Varlamov is, is showing that he can certainly handle a, a heavier workload. Yeah, I think based off of how Barry spoke to us during training camp, we kind of expected maybe the first half of the year to be two-thirds Varlamov, maybe three-quarters Varlamov as they – got Ilya Sorokin used to the North American style because the rink is different. It's more narrow in North America. We saw in a couple of the goals that Sorokin allowed it in the game at Madison Square Garden. He was off his angle a little bit, and that just takes time to get used to. So Barry kind of said, you know, we want to get him as much work with Piero Greco and Mitch Korn, the goaltending staff for the Islanders, and work him in slowly. And if they can get to that point, maybe the second half of the season when you're in that sprint towards the playoffs, then you go back to a, a maybe 1A, 1B tandem, but still expect Varlamov to be the guy should the Islanders make the playoffs because he has all that postseason experience, even in recent times with the Islanders. But five games in, it's a 3-2 split so far. This week, I'm sure the plan is, is likely to be three games for Varlamov and one for Sorokin because there is the first back-to-back -back situation in Philadelphia, Saturday, Sunday. So, you know, I'm not in the coaching staff's mind, but uh, as an observer of this team every day, that's probably what we'll, we'll see this upcoming week. Yeah, I would, I would agree with you that Sorokin probably gets one of either the Saturday or Sunday night game in Philadelphia. 
Um, just to talk about Ilya for a minute, you know, because there's been so, such keen interest in him building up over five seasons. So it, it's kind of been great that we we finally get to see him on the ice. But of course, now our job is to kind of analyze and, you know, uh, you know, uh, pick apart his play a, a little bit. And, you know, I think you throw out the five nothing loss to the Rangers. And like you said, he was off his angle certainly on that Buchnevich shot, uh, you know, probably uh, the first goal he'd like to have back. It seemed like his arm wasn't as tight to his body as maybe it needed to be. Um, last night, uh, and we're talking on Monday, so Sunday night, uh, 2 nothing loss to the Devils. This is a planned start. Um, Ilya's told at least 24 hours in advance this is his game. I thought he played reasonably well, but again, that adjustment, I thought on that Jack Hughes power play goal, he probably could have taken a little bit of a better angle on that. I, I know it was kind of tough. Hughes was allowed to skate in, but still it seemed like Sorokin kind of gave away some space up high. Yeah. And you still can't fault him for the defeat yesterday. He still hasn't had a single goal scored by the Islanders in either of the two games he's played. So you're talking six periods now and not a single goal for, and the Isles did have just that blip in late in the first period, two goals back to back. It's tough to fault Ilya really for the defeat. Um, the one thing that I think we won't see much of in the future as he works on his game and also just communication with his new Islander teammates who aren't so new anymore, considering he's been with the squad ever since the return to play in August there was just that one play where an icing was coming in and Ilya played the puck, which again, maybe just working on that communication between him and the defense. So that's something that we see as maybe a rookie type of mistake, even if he's not your traditional 20 year old rookie, uh, just getting used to things over here. And I doubt we'll see another play like that. I'm sure they looked at that and said, Hey, you, you gotta make sure that if it's going to be an icing, speak with the defense, they'll let you know, and uh, we won't have another play in that vein again. Yeah, no, I, I agree. There were a couple of where he was trying to play the puck and it, it just looked a little bit awkward here and there. And, you know, obviously on the, uh, on the Pavel Zaka goal, he'd probably like that rebound back a little bit. That's not where you, you leave a rebound against an NHL team. But again, no, I, I agree with you. You know, he would have had to have been perfect last night just to get him to overtime. So, you know, I, I know Anders Lee and uh, a couple of the other Islanders spoke after the game about feeling like they owed Ilya much better than they've given him so far. And he, he hasn't gotten the runs apart. Uh, Semyon Varlamov, meanwhile, has gotten nine goals total in his three games. So that's where you go with three and two. I mentioned we'd start with the good because they have three wins, two losses, it seems to me when Barry Trotz's teams are playing well, you got a four line balance, right? And, and he's able to go with, you know, pretty much throwing the lines out there. Now we, we've seen him not be able to really settle on wings yet for Jean-Gabriel Pajot's line. And now with Anthony Beauvillier, uh, questionable day to day with a uh, lower body injury, you know, Barry Trotz was talking today, but basically other than the Matthew Barzell line with Lee and Jordan Eberle, they're not getting much offense. How, how do you see them rectifying this? Um, you know, and, and do you think the wings that 
will eventually wind up on, on JG Peugeot's line are on the roster right now. Well, if you hear from Barry earlier today, uh, he kind of said that even if both Elliott could go, there's a chance to jumble up the lines, which had pretty much been set in stone, even going into the postseason a few months ago, you're not going to touch the fourth line. Sezikas Clutterbuck and Matt Martin, if they're all healthy, they're going to play together. You're probably not going to want to touch the top line because they still have been producing, even though no points last night, they did have their chances. Uh, Jordan Everly was robbed three consecutive times early in the second period. So Scott Wedgwood played a heck of a game, especially for a goaltender who's only had two starts in basically the last three calendar years. So the top line had its looks last night against the Devils. Maybe you just jumble around that middle six, even though that second line has been consistent in the trio that's been there in Bailey Bovilli and Nelson. Maybe you, you try to mix up the wingers for JG Pajot, get him going a bit more offensively. We've seen Trout's really rely on JG, and he hasn't had set wingers. He also hasn't been necessarily set at center. There are times second and third period in tight games where he's been double shifting, playing alongside Sezikis and Clutterbuck in a Matt Martin spot for a shift here and a shift there. Matt hasn't been benched for an entire period or anything like that, but maybe one out of every three shifts, JG has gone into that role. So he's comfortable playing with, with different players, and we'll see if uh, an Oliver Wallstrom can come in, Leo Komarov can come in. We thought we were going to see Wallstrom in the Devils game. He ended up not in. Michael Dow Cole comes in off of IR, but – you have a couple of wingers there that probably will get some action, maybe not in Washington, but I would say definitely by the Philadelphia game, unless things really change and the offense starts to click at the four goal level that we saw in two of the five games this year, not the one total goal in the three other contests. You know, one thing, uh, if you talk about inconsistency with the team in the postseason bubble, we, we all saw how good Brock Nelson's line with Bo and uh, Josh Bailey can be and how consistent they can be and, and what a boost it is to the Islanders when you got both Nelson's line and Barzell's line going. Now, this season, I, I know Nelly scored in that, uh, was it that first, game or that, that first game at the Coliseum? He's got a couple, I believe. Yeah, right? he scored in that game, and then he scored uh, the power play goal, and the devil came right after. We thought yeah. he was done for the night, considering the cut he had on his, on his face. Yeah. Um, but that line, you know, with Bo and, and, and Bailey has, has not been as consistent as we've seen in the postseason bubble. Do you think that's more of a, you know, them just not getting off to the, the greatest start this season? Or is it more indicative of, you know, how the team is playing in general? It's probably more indicative of the way the team is playing in general. They have been a part of effective power plays at times. So uh, you go back to the Devils game on Sunday night and in their first power play of the game, the Owls only had two, but the first power play of the game, six shots on goal. Everybody was working on that man advantage. It was split right in the middle too. I think 54 seconds for the first unit, minute six for the second unit. Each unit had three shots. Pretty much all six had an opportunity to go in. They weren't just weak wristers from the point. Bailey, Bovilli, Brock's usually a hot starter, but usually the start of the season is in October. We're in January right now, so a little different there. Bo, sometimes it takes him a little while to get going. I think it was in the 2018-19 the campaign. Was it, it took him 17 games maybe to yeah. get his first goal, something along those lines. So it's not the first time that Bo's been off to a slow start point-wise, but he still has come on even in those seasons where he didn't get a, a start 
the hot start. We're only five games into the year, so it could come in game six or game seven. Yeah, I, I, I actually thought, and I wrote about it in Sunday's Newsday, I thought it was a good sign that Jordan Everly got a couple of goals this early in the season because, as Barry said, he's a noted slow starter. Um, and, and you mentioned, you know, him being robbed three times in the second period. Uh, if Jordan can get his game untracked early in the season, I mean, really, it behooves everyone on this roster to get their game untracked early just because of the 56 games. Barry doesn't have a lot of time to, to be patient with some of these players. He's got to get points and, and, and a lot of points quickly. Yeah, without a doubt. And for Everly, you look at some of his stats. And this is hard to believe. It's already his fourth year now with the Islanders after the seven seasons in Edmonton. He had 25 goals that first year, but that was the team that really knew how to play offense, didn't necessarily know how to play defense. The numbers have taken a little bit of a hit in terms of going down from 25 goals to 19 and then into the abbreviated season, 16 goals. But he still put up 14 points in a 22 playoff game, scored one of the biggest goals of the postseason run. So we know it's there for Jordan, and uh, I'll expect to see that pretty soon. And it just we talked, as you mentioned, the sprint, there's not a lot of time, only 56 games. It's interesting that it seems like every other team in this East Division, almost every game they play goes into overtime. The Islanders haven't had a single overtime game yet, and it hurts them when all these opponents are going into extra beyond 60 minutes because those become those three-point games. The Capitals in their six games this season, they've already lost three beyond 60 minutes. <laughs> yeah, no, these, you know, every game's a four-point game, and if you're throwing in an extra point there, then, uh, you know, you dig yourself a hole early, and it, it's going to be like trying to scramble out of a mud hole to, to, to get back up in, into the playoff race. Um, yeah. And that's why that win against the Bruins, which came late in the last five minutes, was huge that that came in regulation. It's early in the year, but would you be totally shocked if the Islanders made the playoffs as a four seed over the Bruins by a point or two points and that late regulation win ends up being the difference all the way at the end of the year? No, not at all. Uh, I agree. Or, with or even the difference between a one seed and a two seed or a two seed and a three seed, which is crucial this year. Yeah, meanwhile, uh, to that point, if the Islanders are going to play all these two-game series as, you know, the NHL schedule makers have worked out uh, to, to limit travel, they're going to have to figure out how to sweep a couple of these two-game series and not keep splitting them. Well, that's kind of the old adage. It's tough to beat a team two consecutive games or if, uh, you know, you're a football team and you sweep a divisional opponent in the regular season, really difficult to win that third game if you end up matching up against them in the playoffs so it's it's a weird year this year you're going to see a team a lot eight times against every divisional opponent I'm sure there are a lot of those series that are going to be five wins to one team three wins to the other at the most varied you know probably a lot of four four splits with some overtime games in there especially with how talented pretty much top to bottom this East division is the devils who were the bottom feeders last year in the Metro. They've already put together a few nice wins, one over the Islanders, one over the Rangers and one over the Bruins. Yeah, no, Lindy Ruff has definitely made a difference there. I mean, he's got them moving up the ice pretty quickly and, and they do have, they have some good skaters on that team. So, and, and certainly when Nico, he's uh, you know, gets healthy and Jesper Bratt gets out of quarantine, that's going to pop, some some of those players into their correct positions and really give them some forward depth so I, and, I would and six of the eight teams from this east division made the the 2014 playoffs last year 
both the Sabres and the Devils were mere percentage points out. I think if just one game flipped for either one of those two teams, the Devils won one more game of regulation or the Sabres won one more game of regulation, they would have been in the playoffs and not the Canadians who were the 12 seed ended up knocking off the Penguins. So that's how close all eight teams could have been in the playoffs last year. It's a funky year we've got here and uh, certainly a different look to the, to the standings and schedule. One other player I want to ask you about, your, your early impressions, uh, Noah Dobson uh, inheriting a full-time role this season. Uh, other than the 5 nothing loss to the Rangers where he, you know, turnover leads to a goal, a couple of other turnovers. Other than that, uh, between, you know, how he's played in both zones and, and quarterbacking uh, the power play, I, I think Noah, you can clearly see the growth from one season to the next. And Noah Dobson talked about it himself that he now gets it. And, you know, the, the way Barry Trotz and his staff brought him along slowly last season, he sees the dividends and the benefits this season and he gets it. And the confidence is remarkable when you see him on the ice and poised with the puck, some great stretch passes that we saw in particular in that devil's game Sunday night, where he's in the defensive zone, finds a guy in stride at the offensive blue line and, you just look at how the coaching staff is playing them because that's an indicator of how much confidence they have in Noah. Last year in his 34 games, he averaged 13 minutes and 17 seconds. This year, played all five games so far, and he's averaging 19 minutes a night. And uh, the second game of the year, the one that, yeah, you, you acknowledge he did struggle a little bit more than, than the rest. He only played just, just over 14 minutes. So even with that one anomaly, uh, he's still averaging 19 minutes a night. They really put their confidence in Noah. And bo both you and I are, are in the same boat. Obviously, the team goes to the postseason bubble last year, uh, last season, and we're, you know, writing and broadcasting from home, you know, or, or, or you know, not in the arena. And now both you and I, we've, we've covered games at Madison Square Garden. We've covered games at Nassau Coliseum. We were both at uh, Prudential Center. In, uh, in Newark the other night. Just what are your impressions? How, how great is it to be back in the building and, and, and calling a game live? And, you know, how has this experience maybe changed you as a broadcaster in terms of what you look for and, and, and how you're doing the game? I think you appreciate the little things more from a broadcast, whether it's when you know a goaltender has been pulled and you're not relying on a shot in the offensive zone from the camera. And then all of a sudden you see that sixth attacker come in or you know where the penalty is coming from. It's not something that happened behind the play that you're completely guessing. That's been a great benefit of being back in the rink. And we know how lucky we are to be able to see some games in person. Now it's going to be a mix. The games that Kinger and I can't drive to there and back in the same day, we are going to be back in the studio at Hofstra calling those games. So we are experienced now at that because of that run over the summer, but there's nothing like calling a game live and in person. And it adds so much more to the broadcast. And thankfully the way the NHL was able to pipe that on ice effect noise in our ear and the crowd effect noise in our ear during those studio broadcasts, it did make us feel like we were there. It added to the energy level of the broadcast, but again, nothing beats seeing a game live and in person. So I'm assuming you're doing the two Capitals games from the Hofstra studio. And then are you driving to Philly and back on back-to-back -back yes, days? We, uh, we have to thank the NHL for uh, pushing to get us in the building. And uh, we will be 
down in Philadelphia for uh, Saturday and Sunday's games. Well, that that's fantastic. Tell everyone where they can listen to you, which stations. The Islanders are Radio Network, 88.7 FM, Radio Hofstra University, and then uh, a mix of ESPN, some games on 1050, some games on 98.7 FM, and then our uh, Suffolk affiliate, 103.9 FM, and of course, NHL app, the Islanders app, the Hofstra app, Sirius XM, lots of different ways you can listen to our broadcasts. And you can follow Greg, who has some wonderful insight and stats at Greg Picker here on Twitter, and you have a you have a fun account to uh, follow there. Greg, uh, as always, uh, I, I really appreciate, you know, spending a few minutes. Always great talking hockey with you on the record, off the record, in person, via Zoom, however it's done. Uh, always appreciate your insight. Thanks, Andrew. And uh, one day we will be sharing a media meal again together. Yeah, and maybe even a Las Vegas buffet. <laughs> can only dream. <laughs> Thanks, Greg. Thank you. And I certainly appreciate Greg uh, hopping on like that. And I appreciate the questions you submitted for Andrew's Answers. It's time for your questions with Andrew's Answers. And as mentioned in the in the lead segment uh, uh, before we spoke to Greg, many of the questions here, uh, you know, are revolving around uh, Jean-Gabriel Pajot, his line, and the roster construction in general. So I'll just dive right into it. And uh, this one, this question comes to me via Newsday Islanders text. And I, I've been given permission um, to call Michael Tricarico uh, Mike T., <laughs> uh, which which we all remember uh, is the old uh, Jets GM Mike Tannenbaum, but uh, via Newsday Islander text, Mike T says, "Hi Andrew, I would like to know why Ross Johnson has been dressing every night. While I realize having him in the lineup once in a while serves a purpose, it seems that his role should be more limited, and that Peugeot should be playing with a better winger in order to maximize." what he brings to the table. Um, let's see. Uh, I know we got some other uh, uh, Ross Johnson questions. Uh, just scrolling through. Uh, uh, Michael, and this is via Twitter, what's the obsession with Ross Johnson? Uh, doesn't seem he offers much. Uh, Andre says, I do believe Ross Johnson works hard, but do you think he really deserves to be in the lineup? I'd rather see Pajot centering Dal Collin, Wallstrom, or Bellows. Heck, even Leo Komarov would be better. Um, let's see, I think that is it for the specific Ross Johnson questions. Um so let me just address them, and I, I'll go back to uh, something that uh, Barry Trotz was talking about last season, and, and and here's some perspective on what Barry Trotz sees in Ross Johnson. And uh, let me start out by saying, you know, if you know, again, I'm privileged, or I, I used to be, to be able to go into the room and, and get to know these guys. And, you know, Ross Johnson is, you, know, you hear this a lot with hockey players, but really he's one of those guys you give a lot of time to. He's a hard worker. He's a, he's a very thoughtful, um, you know, diligent, uh, a great teammate. He sticks up for everyone. 
Um, but I, I know those are not, you know, reasons to play Ross every game. Um, I, I happen to think that, you know, for a big guy, uh, he has some soft hands around the net. You know, he can knock off a pretty good shot here and there. Um, and uh, he certainly worked on his skating through his tenure with the Islanders uh, uh, organization. But a, a, as far as dressing every night, uh, you know, I get that because you also have Matt Martin in the lineup. And, you know, I, I asked Lou Lamarillo about there being some redundancy potentially with uh, Ross Johnson and Matt Martin in the lineup. And Lou disagreed vehemently, um, you know, vehement being a strong word, but he said he saw no redundancy uh, between the two of them. Circling back to what Barry Trotz sees in Ross Johnson, beyond, you know, the shot that, you know, me being an amateur scout can see, and uh, certainly, you know, his, his improved skating skills, how he sticks up for everyone, and, you know, he does get in on the forecheck, does try and get himself to the crease, what what Barry Trotz sees is, and, and this is a hard comparison because I don't think Ross Johnson ever develops into a top line uh, wing, but with his body, Barry Trotz is seeing maybe some of the same development that 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 he saw in Tom Wilson, and that he certainly helped Tom Wilson get to. Uh, with the Washington Capitals. Again, I, I don't think Ross Johnson develops into what Tom Wilson is now, but I, I do think Ross Johnson can get to the point where he's a, you know, a, a, a very, you know, a, a decent contributor on a game-by-game basis. Right now, you know, he, he was last on the team in average uh, ice time. He had only taken one shot through his uh, first four games, I believe, uh, I, I agree that Ross, and, you know, not singling him out, I, I don't think, you know, uh, Kiefer was, wasn't getting a lot of ice time or, or creating a lot of chances either. Uh, the, it, it just hasn't worked with Pajot's wings yet. And, uh, you know, I, I, I do think we're going to see a change there. I, I would suspect that maybe Ross uh, comes out of the lineup a little bit and, uh, and Barry tries uh, something else. And, again, that's going to be dependent on, uh, you know, how long Anthony Beauvillier is out. Um, let's see. Uh, Sab, and this is via Twitter, says the lineup changes yesterday after a win and uh, no back-to-back surprised me. Uh, and, and those line changes were uh, predicated and, and, and necess- necessitated by Anthony Beauvillier going out uh, midway through the second period. Uh, with Bo out for a bit, and we don't know for sure, you know, the timetable here, uh, do you see Barry revising lines two and three and sticking with it or a constant shuffle? Well, I, I think Barry would like to get to the point where he's got four lines that he can consistently roll. But yeah, uh, look, he, he talked about he's not getting enough, uh, even before Bo got hurt, he's not getting the same consistency out of Bo Nelson and Josh Bailey that he did in the postseason. So I, I sort of think that lines two and three were ripe for uh, a little bit of shuffling. Again, you, know, I, I, you don't have much complaints with what Matthew Barzell is doing with Anders Lee and Jordan Everly. Um, as you heard Greg say, you know, Jordan Jordan was robbed two or three times by Scott Wedgwood on Sunday, and, and he had two goals in the previous game. So I don't know if you want to go away from that Barzell with uh, 
Ebbs and uh, Anders right now. But I, I do think two and three are going to be mixed up. Uh, I, I would like to see maybe Bailey with Pajot, um, you know, and, and I think, you know, one, one potential thing is you could, you know, it, with Beauvillier out, maybe you, you, you move, uh, you, you move uh, Pajot to Nelson's left wing and you play him with Bailey. Uh, and that sort of weakens your, your 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 bottom six for sure, but you know you you can use Leo Komarov maybe in the middle. You know maybe the way uh, he's been using Casey's line, maybe that becomes the third line. You use Casey and Cal and and Martin Moore as a third line, and you can use uh, you know uh, Leo with uh, you know with Dal Cal. Uh, and maybe, uh, you know, I'd like to see a Wallstrom or a Bellows in there. Um, you know, or, or, you know, we just talked about Ross Johnson, but those are the candidates there. Um, I, I, I do think Barry's going to look to get a little bit more scoring and you, you do have the option of, uh, moving Pajot up and down and, you know, to the wing and, and, and at center. So maybe that's, uh, where Barry will look. Um, and <laughs> and Andy Hicks is thinking right along with me. If Bo misses some time at some point, uh, could or a top six player misses time, could you see Pajot filling that role, uh, that hole? Uh, if not, who is really second line level ready or quality? And if he does, our third line will be low on our on production expectation. Should we be concerned about a lock, lack of top six depth? Um, well, uh, like I said, Andy Hicks is thinking the same way I I, I am with with pa- moving Pajot into the top six, uh, top six depth. Um, look, I I think a lot of this is going to getting back to Wallstrom and Bellows. You know, we we all sort of have Wallstrom projected as a as a top six wing at some point, and you know. Uh, Kiefer Bellows scoring and shooting also suggests that he could play that kind of role. Um, you know, uh, uh, we, we'll have to see whether whether that is the case. Um, but yeah, right now with Bo out, it, it certainly does leave a hole. Um, and, and I do think that, that Barry is going to be, uh, you know, moving a, a few parts until he settles on something. Uh Eric Fischetti uh, says, uh, let's see, at Agros Newsday, you and I spoke way back when normal was a thing. And he he, um, he works for uh, WHPC, that's 90.3 Sports Talk. Do you think we'll eventually see Bello Pajo Wallstrom as the eventual third line for the Islanders this season? And uh uh, that is certainly, uh, you know, that is certainly a possibility. Um, it, it sort of de- depends on whether uh, uh, Trotz can uh, can trust Bellows and Wallstrom out together defensively. Uh, I know he doesn't worry about what they can generate in the offensive zone, but uh, uh, Pajot can't do everything two way. It, it's it, you know, Wallstrom and Bellows also have to chip in there, and it, it's something they've gotten better at. You know, it, it develops 
there there is a learning curve for uh, players at this stage coming into the NHL, and you know they got eight and nine games respectively uh, last season. But you know if if they're going to play more in a full time role, Trotz has to uh, completely trust them defensively. Um, let's see, going down. Uh, let's see. Peugeot, Peugeot, Peugeot. Uh, he doesn't have problems with Ross Johnson. He has problems with Michael Dalcole, as in succinctly, why do the Islanders keep playing Michael Dalcole? And look, I know fifth overall pick, it, it's probably not the, the career projection uh, that that Islander fans had for Michael Dalcole when he's taken that high. Um, he's got a good motor. You hear that in football a lot. He moves his feet. He is hard along the walls. He is hard in the corners. He's good on the forecheck. Skates hard. Um, he's turning into a very gritty player. Um, and again, you know, you talk about top six depth. Well, you know, are the Islanders fielding and dressing too many bottom six forwards? And, you know, MDC is, uh, you know, is really in that category of a, a grinder, a bottom six grinder. And I know Barry Trotz finds value in that as to why do the Islanders keep playing MDC? Well, he, he was just in that one game off of... Uh, off of uh, the injured reserve. And look, you know, I didn't think for his first game, I, I thought MDC was uh, noticeable in the things I was talking about. He did get in on the body, particularly as the game went on. Uh, you know, good play along the walls and uh, was trying to create a forecheck. Um, let's see. Uh, let's see. Andre also wants to know if Bo is out for a while, who becomes a second line left wing. Uh, I'm proposing Gigi Pajot, uh, as, uh, as discussed in trots, we trust wants to know, will Lou ever make a move to increase the goal scoring? So far, all his acquisitions have been third and fourth liners. Plus he traded our best, uh, offensive D man. Look, he had to trade Devontae's for salary cap reasons, uh, you know, in order to be able to re-sign Matthew Barzell. And that's just, you know, the, the, the cold, hard business truth. Um, you know, look, technically, yes, Jean-Gabriel Pajot is centering the third line. But acquiring and then immediately signing Pajot to that six-year deal, uh, that's not, you know, a, a typical third liner. Um, and Pajot was certainly playing up in the Ottawa Senators uh, uh, lineup. Uh, you know, I, I, I don't look at Pajot as only acquiring a third or a fourth liner. I, I, I looked at Pajot as going out and, and getting, you know, one of the best forwards available on the, uh, uh, on the market at that time. Um, but I, I do agree, and, and as again, as I mentioned in the lead segment, you know, if it if Wallstrom and, and Bellows cannot fill those roles quickly and cannot increase the scoring, at what point does Lou Lamarillo start to consider using him as trade chips rather than lineup pieces and, and going out and getting a more established score? And I, I certainly think that's one of the scenarios that could happen this season. Um, 
Matty Boy Camerer wants to know, Hi, Andrew, is there a reason why Lou is keeping the roster at 23 instead of taxing a couple of more and banking cap space? With the way space is prorated at the deadline, even $1.5 million in space could allow for $5, $6 million in a rental. Pens, for example, are 22, Flyers 21, Bruins 20. Um, it, it's a good question, and before answering it, let me get to Brian G., who says, do the Islanders need to put uh, defenseman Sebastian Ajo, Michael Dalcall, or Ross Johnson on waivers to be able to bring up Wallstrom and Bellows from the taxi squad? The answer is yes to that, and I think that yes ties in to Matty Boy Kammerer's question as to why the Islanders are keeping the roster at 23. Um, you know, I, I think there is, you know, certainly with the Sebastian Ajo, I would not be putting him on waivers one bit. Um, this, this is a young defenseman who, uh, by all scouting reports uh, at this point, and, and also, you know, watching him in practice. This is, I believe, an NHL-ready uh, defenseman. I think you would lose him uh, with that salary if you put him through through uh, waivers, which you would have to do to get him to the taxi squad. And, and to be honest with you, I, I, it wouldn't shock me if, uh, you know, a, another team would claim Michael Dalcall, uh, honestly, um, because you, you, you like that kind of depth. And there are a lot of coaches who have a lot of time for players with a motor like Dalcall and, and, and who who were okay doing that, that kind of dirty work. And, uh, you know, it, it could be that, you know, Lou and Barry are reading, reading the uh, tea leaves and thinking that it, it's not, not the right time to put Dal call on waivers to get him to a taxi squad. Um, let's see. Uh, KV says, how does Lou fix his goal differential problem internally? I'll hang up and listen. <laughs> I've been over a lot of this. Um, you know, if you're looking internally, I think you're looking squarely at uh, Wallstrom and Bellows. And as I mentioned in the lead segment, you know, are, are you thinking about Josh Hosang as well? And those, you know, certainly uh, some of the internal candidates. I don't think Simon Holmstrom uh, is quite there yet maybe next season for Simon Holmstrom. Uh, this is going to be a really good year of development uh, for Simon in the AHL where there's going to be way more practice than games. A lot of one-on-one -on -one work as uh, Bridgeport coach Brent Thompson discussed on Zoom on Monday. Go back to Islanders Newsday text for another question from Mike T, um, which is simply... How is Semyon Varlamov not one of the stars of the week? And uh, I got a, a simple answer for you, which is, which is this. Just bad timing. Look, uh, the Islanders' first game was January 14th. Uh, Varley pitches a shutout. Uh, he doesn't play on Jan 16th. He pitches another shutout on Jan 18th uh, against the Bruins. one nothing. Um, but the, the, the first and, and the NHL always puts out three stars of the week uh, on, on a Monday. And it's for the week ending that Sunday. So we're talking the first trio of stars of the week was for the week ending the 24th. So really, all you're looking at for Semyon Varlamov is that start on January 18th. 
Um, and then he gave up one goal uh, against the Devils, a 4-1 win on, on the Thursday. He did not play in the Sunday game. So two starts uh, in, in the week for Varlamov. And look, I, I agree. This is, he, he kind of fell between the cracks there. I certainly thought Varlamov, you know, should have been one of the stars of the week. I, I thought the first stars of the week should have covered from January 14th through January 24th. It did not. It covered the week of January 24th, and, and Varlamov just had those two starts. So the, the, the three stars of the week, uh, the first star was Tyler Toffoli, um, the former king, uh, who's now with the Montreal Canadiens, who had five goals, uh, which led the NHL and was tied for the NHL lead with eight points as he makes his Montreal debut. Um, second star was Joe Pavelski of the Dallas Stars, who had a pair of game-winning goals, had three goals, four assists. The third star, and this is the one that will rankle you, is uh, Anaheim Ducks goalie John Gibson, who stopped 95 of the 99 shots in going 2-0-1 with a 1.33 goals against average and a 9.60 save percentage. Now, again, you know, Varley's three starts did not fall into the correct time frame, but you compare what Gibson did with Varley's three starts, uh, you have... Uh, you know, uh, Varley again was 3-0-0 in his first three starts with a 0.33 GAA. Gibson had a 1.33 GAA. Varley has a 0.988 save percentage, while Gibson has a 0.960 save percentage. But Gibson's three starts came within the correct time frame. So, you know, Varley just kind of, you know, no fault of his own. He just misses out there. Um, another question via Islanders, uh, via Newsday Islanders text. This is from Anthony Miano, who says, Hi, Andrew, I'm a Long Island native who left in the 70s. And in parentheses, he says, Billy, o Billy or Chico. And, and let me just stop right there. Uh, I, I think I've said before that, that Billy Smith, was absolutely, you know, my favorite player growing up. And when I played goal, I I I had a Islanders number thirty one jersey, and I whacked everyone's you know ankles who came in front of my crease. I I wanted to be Billy Smith in, in the worst way. Now, having said that, um, you know, I I've met Billy once, had a very cordial but brief conversation in the uh in the uh in the hallway at Nassau Coliseum I believe this was when Butch Goring had his uh had his jersey retired Billy uh declined an interview request because he said and you know he's been pretty steady with this he you know he doesn't understand why people would want to talk to him because he's not a player anymore and he, he's just not interested in doing interviews does not stop me one bit from you know saying that you know as a kid he was he was my idol I you know no love lost for Billy Smith I, I still think he's you know my favorite goalie of all time Chico Rush however I, I've gotten to know on a personal level I consider Chico a friend uh, Chico has been wonderful to me. 
Um, you know, gotten to know him when I covered the Devils and, you know, even before when I covered the Rangers and he was doing uh, Devils TV. I, I could spend hours and hours and hours with Chico Russia. I consider him a, a really good friend, just a wonderful human being who's got all the time in the world for other people. Uh, I can't even start to tell you how well Chico has treated my two daughters and, uh, you know, Chico's just good people. So if you ask me Billy or Chico, it, <laughs> it's not as easy a question as you, you, you think it would be. And, and I'm sorry, I, I really went off on a tangent there. Anthony's real question is, um, he's happy about the Islanders moving back to where they belong. How is the arena at Belmont Park going? Will it be ready for next season? And yeah, it's, it's targeted, Anthony, uh, to open in November. And, you know, as long as there's not a, a second construction delay um, because of the pandemic, and, and so far, so good. Do you hear me knocking on wood there? Um, yeah, it, it will be ready for, their, for next season. Um, they're just about, uh, they were, you know, they're, they're moving all the work inside now. They're putting some seats in. Uh, I believe the roof is done. I, I haven't checked uh, this last week or two, but they were just about to, you know, um, top off the roof and, and, and have a, you know, a, a ceremony for that. And uh, um, they're, they're working diligently indoors now and, and, and really it's an arena. It look you you drive by. It looks like an arena. It's got this yeah, beautiful brick face. It, it's the designers have done a great job having it blend into Belmont Park. Um, so it looks sort of like one big, you know, like this was the plan all along. And you know, I I can't wait to get in there. And as we all say, we're all gonna miss Nassau Coliseum because games in there are special. They just are. But UBS Arena is going to be pretty spectacular uh, to get into. So, Anthony, uh, yeah, looking forward to that next season. And, you know, uh, you know, even though I'm allowed into the Coliseum to cover games, it's not the same without fans. And, and I'm hoping all of you are, are in, you know, UBS Arena uh, sooner rather than later. Um, one last question. And this comes from Michael Minucci, who says, Can you please explain why so many Islander fans can't wrap their heads around the fact that this team has been successful for two straight seasons and they still can't be satisfied? I know winning a Stanley Cup should be so easy. This roster is very capable. And and Michael Minucci, I think you've you've just you know, shot a arrow into the bullseye of what it means to be a fan. You're always nervous about your team. You, you see the flaws before you see the greatness. Um, a lot of it is, you know, you're, you're watching your team so much that the, the flaws come out to you. Um, whereas, you know, maybe a more casual observer would watch the Islanders and, and, and be much more enthralled with what they're seeing with the hard work and, uh, you know, uh, on, on their good games when they click offensively. But, you know, fan is a, a short term of fanatic. And uh, I, I will leave it at that. That, that is probably why 
uh, it, it's hard to wrap your head around it. And uh, so that's it for episode 66, the Josh Hosang episode of Island Ice. Thanks again for you, for all the questions, and to Islanders radio analyst Greg Picker for his time. And if you're interested in Newsday's Islanders texts, please text 631-303-3766 or go to newsday.com backslash Isles text to start your 14-day trial subscription. You can also find all the Islanders coverage at newsday.com backslash sports. Talk to you soon. Happy hockey, everybody.